the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I was absent yesterday. Every eight weeks I go in for a special infusion that helps keep me healthy. So um, I'll be gone in another two months or a full day. But anyway, glad to be back behind the mic and to declare a touchdown. Well, we'll get into that in a moment. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. He writes about what being in war is really like and how our freedom isn't free, but do we really appreciate the cost? He'll join us in the next uh, segment or two. We'll also talk with Maureen Ferguson. She's a senior fellow with the Catholic Association. They filed an amicus brief in the Dobbs case. We're going to talk about what next following this momentous decision made by the Supreme Court last Friday, or at least released by the Supreme Court last Friday. Well, as mentioned, it's a touchdown and the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a football coach's right to prayer. Well, it's an end of the fourth quarter. There's no time remaining on the clock. The final score, six to three. Coach Joe Kennedy has won. Well, after a seven year legal battle, the Supreme Court today, or actually Monday, affirmed Kennedy's right to take a knee in silent prayer, in view of the public, after a high school football game. He didn't invite players to join him. He just took to the knee and thanked God for himself. The free exercise and free speech clause of the First Amendment protect an individual engaged in a personal religious observance from government reprisal. That's a quote from Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the 6-3 majority opinion, adding that the Constitution neither mandates nor permits the government to suppress such religious expression. Well, the landmark decision affirms that no American should have to choose between their faith and their job. Sarah Parshall Perry, a senior legal fellow with the Heritage Foundation, said in a statement after the court's ruling on Monday morning, today the Supreme Court reaffirmed a longstanding principle correctly ruling that teachers and other school employees do not surrender their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. And she said of the 75 page opinion, adding that Kennedy's prayers did not violate the Constitution's Establishment Clause. Coach Kennedy, um, uh, Coach Kennedy's quiet prayers after school football games, though visible to students, in no way represented a government establishment or endorsement of religion, contrary to the erroneous ruling of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. After a seven-year battle to protect his right to religious expression, we're pleased that Coach Kennedy's story has a happy ending, one that will set a precedent protecting the right of all Americans to practice their faith in the public square. In 2015, looking back, Kennedy lost his job as an assistant football coach at Bremerton High School, some 30 miles west of Seattle, after taking a knee in prayer at the 50-yard line after games. Well, from the time he began coaching in 2008, Kennedy said he made a covenant with God that he would take 
uh, would thank him rather in prayer at the 50 yard line after the end of every game. No student or parent filed a formal complaint about the practice. So it wasn't a matter of the community expressing their outrage. The prayers, uh, how long they were, I would say probably they averaged about 8 to 12 seconds, Kennedy told the uh, Daily Signal during a documentary interview. I mean, I'm not a great prayer of a guy, Kennedy said. It was really, thank you, God, for what these young men just did on the field, and thank you for letting me be a part of it. That was it. When the Bremerton School Board, uh, School District, rather, learned of Kennedy's prayers uh, routine, Uh, It uh, told him that he could no longer pray after games, even by himself. But Kennedy determined to keep the covenant he made with God. Well, the decision to continue after the school district told him to stop ultimately cost him that job. The football coach decided to fight back and field a lawsuit. The Supreme Court heard arguments in that case in April of this year. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, who make up the court's liberal bloc, dissented from the majority opinion, saying this case is about whether a public school must permit a school official to kneel, bow his head and say a prayer at the center of the school event. Sotomayor wrote in dissent, the Constitution does not authorize, let alone require public schools to embrace this conduct. And by the way, this was at the end of the game, so the student event had already ended. But the court's um, constitutionalist majority ruled that Kennedy had the right to practice his faith and pray on the field at the end of the games. This is just awesome, Kennedy said in a written statement after the uh, Supreme Court released its ruling. All I've ever wanted was to be back on the field with my guys. I am incredibly grateful to the Supreme Court, my fantastic legal team, and everyone who has supported me. I thank God for answering our prayers and sustaining my family through this long battle. Well, Kennedy previously said that he would like to return to coaching at Bremerton High School if the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. This is a tremendous victory for Coach Kennedy and religious liberty for all Americans. That's a quote from Kelly Shackelford, president and CEO of Ch- and chief counsel of First Liberty, the nonprofit legal organization that represented Coach Kennedy. We are grateful to the Supreme Court that they recognize the Constitution and law have always said Americans are free to live out their faith in public. Or from the very beginning of Kennedy's legal fight, he said all he wanted from the Supreme Court was a ruling that allows him to be a coach. And thank God afterward, the justices gave Kennedy the ruling he prayed for. Later on in this program, we'll talk about uh, one of the more controversial decisions yet to be announced by the court uh, having to do with the EPA. So uh, one major decision left to go. In other news, Russia's default distress. Russia defaulted on its foreign currency sovereign debt for the first time in more than a century after failing to make two payments by the Sunday night deadline. Moscow missed the deadline to meet a 30-day grace period on interest payments that were originally due on the 27th of May, but it could be a while before the default is confirmed. Well, the debt default stems from sanctions imposed over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which was launched in late February. The default signals the first of its kind since 1918, although Russia has called it artificial because it can afford to pay its debts, but sanctions have frozen its foreign currency reserves held abroad. No Robin Hood. Americans are stealing gas and reselling it across the U.S. as prices surge. And Governor Kristi Noem on fighting woke politics over the 4th of July fireworks at Mount Rushmore in her new book says this is not my first rodeo. Saying he will not succeed, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says Russian President Putin has already failed in his strategic objective to end Ukraine's independence. And giving Trump the lion's share of credit, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham praised the former president after SCOTUS overturned 
Roe versus Wade. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue to work our way through some of the headline news and talk with Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. That's coming up later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, we'll talk with Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. While increasing the high cost of public records, school districts are pricing parents out on record requests by charging tens of thousands and exorbitant fees. And calling colleagues to reassess, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez suggests pro-life Democrats should no longer serve. Of course, that's up to their constituents to decide. At least 42 migrants were found dead inside a tractor trailer on a roadway in San Antonio, Texas on Monday. Sixteen others found in the truck were taken to area hospitals in varying conditions. The truck was believed to have been part of a human smuggling operation involving migrants. The 18-wheeler was abandoned in a remote area near railroad tracks. Police and first responders were using thermal imaging cameras along the tracks to find any potential survivors and the driver who remains at large. And while it wasn't immediately clear how the migrants died, temperatures in San Antonio hit 102 degrees on Monday. A vehicle's temperature can reach over 115 degrees when the outside temperature is 70, according to data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Mm. In a case of supreme revenge, a New York Times op-ed lays out a plan to discipline SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, over Roe v. Wade. Calling it the most egregious judicial distortion, the Judicial Crisis Network president argued that the courageous Supreme Court's recent abortion ruling makes history as dissenters made no serious effort to support Roe. They might dispute that claim. Saying these deaths are on Biden, Texas governors, uh, Texas's governor slammed the president over the border policy after the 46 migrants were found dead in that tractor trailer. The president's Title IX proposal mirrors an action memo from a George Soros-funded group pushing gender identity into rulemaking. And as confidence plummets, a business uh, leader's optimism hit a record low as soaring inflation and labor shortage shortages continue. On voter privileges, the New York Supreme Court struck down a law allowing non-citizens to vote there. While the leaders of Turkey, Sweden and Finland have signed a trilateral agreement that will clear the way for the two Nordic states to join NATO and clears objections from Istanbul over the application. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg announced the deal on Tuesday evening ahead of the president's scheduled meeting with Turkish President uh, Recep Erdogan on Wednesday. I am pleased to announce we now have an agreement that paves the way for Finland and Sweden to join NATO, Stoltenberg announced. Turkey, Finland and Sweden have signed a memorandum that addresses Turkey's concerns, including around arms exports and the fight against terrorism. Well, details will be worked out over the next uh, a few days, but the deal comes as Europe faces its worst security crisis in decades in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Turkey said it had got what it wanted, including full cooperation in the fight against the rebel groups. In a Supreme touchdown, a Washington state school football coach scored big at the Supreme Court over a postgame prayer and media meltdown. MSNBC and CNN voiced outrage as advocates on both sides call for more nuanced abortion coverage. Maybe balanced would be a better way to, to put it. Offering an unbiased view, the view slammed the U.S. Supreme Court for overturning Roe versus Wade as the liberal hosts declared that they are themselves pro-life. 
analyzing protocols, experts tell Fox News Digital Uvalde officers' ballistic shields wouldn't have stopped rifle rounds, but their hesitation cost lives. Democrats call for the Supreme Court's expansion. Life News reports that Democratic lawmakers call for expanding the Supreme Court and abolishing the filibuster following a string of Supreme Court rulings not in their favor this week. This far-right Supreme Court has ended reproductive freedom as we know it. Democrat Representative Mondaire uh, Jones of New York said after the high court issued its ruling on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. We must expand the court. I ask my colleagues in the Senate, what other judicial outrage must we endure from the illegitimate far-right majority on the Supreme Court before we act? Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts posted, fight back and expand the court now. Now, it's interesting. The Supreme Court issues a ruling and the American people live with that ruling. The pro-life community for some 50 years have lived with a ruling that they disagreed with. But apparently it's not um, it doesn't go both ways. The insider reported New Yorker uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called on the president and congressional Democrats Saturday to work on court reforms, including restraining judicial review and expanding the court. The Daily Wire says Senator Elizabeth Warren blasted the Supreme Court's overturn of Roe, calling for additional justices and a highly controversial new interview. And this week. The reports that the Supreme Court has burned whatever legitimacy they may still have had with their drug, their ruling, rather, overturning Roe versus Wade. Senator Elizabeth Warren tells Martha Raddatz uh, they just took the last of it and set it a torch to it. Very interesting how the public responds when the decision goes opposite your preference. I've lived the opposite of my preference for 50 years with the Supreme Court's decision Roe versus Wade. And now the decision is left up to the people in their respective states. But that is apparently intolerable. Fox News reports that President Joe Biden does not support Democrats pushing to expand the Supreme Court. The White House announced on Saturday. Woke corporations announced new regulations regarding covering employees travel expenses for abortions. The Washington Post reports Walt Disney, J.P. Morgan Chase, Dick Sporting Goods said Friday that they would cover employee travel expense for abortions in light of the Supreme Court decision to strike down Roe versus Wade, joining the ranks of corporate giants scrambling to adjust to the new reality. Disney said the family planning benefit would be extended to any worker who cannot access care where they live, including pregnancy related decisions. The company employs 195,000 worldwide, including roughly 80,000 in Florida. CNBC reports that J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the largest employers in the U.S. financial industry, told workers that it will pay for travel to states that allow legal abortions, according to a memo. The news came as part of an internal communication to employees explaining expanded medical benefits set to begin in July. And Town Hall reports Amazon is another woke corporation that will encourage its female employees to get an abortion by paying them a stipend of $4,000 to cover travel expenses that are not available within a 100-mile radius of their home. And last but not least, streaming giant Netflix announced it will also provide female employees a hefty stipend of $10,000 for travel costs and the procedure itself. We have a long way to go before we live in a pro-life culture. Republicans introduced a bill punishing those who leak Supreme Court draft opinions. Town Hall reports in the wake of the leaked draft opinion on the possible overturn of Roe v. Wade, 
Republicans want to punish those who leak sensitive information and hold them accountable for their actions. Senator Bill Cassidy proposed a new legislation that seeks to punish anyone who is convicted of leaking or pending U.S. Supreme Court draft opinion with fines of up to $10,000 and 10 years in prison. Titled Stop Supreme Court Leakers Act of 2022, the bill would also seize any profits the leaker made as a result of their actions, claiming that the person should not receive a reward for leaking confidential information. And still, the effort to identify the culprit in this most recent case has failed. Senator Bill Cassidy says the recent SCOTUS leak was an attempt to publicly intimidate justices and undermine the integrity of the court, all while putting lives at risk. Just introduce the Stop Supreme Court Leakers Act to hold leakers accountable and take away any hopes of profiting from their crimes. President Biden signed the bipartisan gun control bill into law. USA Today reports proclaiming that lives will be saved. The president signed a bipartisan gun bill Saturday designed to keep weapons away from dangerous people one month after a horrific elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. At a time when it seems impossible to get anything done in Washington, we were doing something consequential, the president said in a brief remark at the White House, hailing the bill as the most significant law of its kind in at least 30 years. The new law enhances background checks on young gun buyers from between 18 and 21. It encourages states to develop more and better red flag laws that would deny guns to people who are deemed to be dangerous. It also adds dating partners to the list of domestic abusers who are prohibited from buying firearms, eliminating the so-called boyfriend loophole. The president cited new crackdowns on gun trafficking and straw purchases. But there are concerns about some elements of the bill. Just the News reports that it does not include a ban on assault-style weapons or guns with high-capacity magazines. The U.S. House passed the Safer Communities Act Friday by a vote of 234 to 193 after the Senate passed it Thursday night by a vote of 65 to 33. And there are questions about the red flag law and whether or not that will be equally applied or abused for political purposes. We're going to take a break, uh, but when we return, a conversation with a veteran. Benjamin Sledge is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. The book is published by Regnery. It's going to be released on the 4th of July, and he thinks it's important for us to understand the nature of war so that we appreciate the freedom we enjoy as a result. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Americans' veterans are rightly held up as heroes in our country's first line of defense. But how these men and women transition back to civilization, back to civilian life, is, well, too often overlooked or misunderstood. Well, in his latest book, Where Cowards Go to Die, which releases, by the way, on the 5th of January, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient Benjamin Sledge reveals the true horror of war from the front lines and the struggle many veterans face when reclaiming, well, life after battle. And while uh, serving a portion of his time under the Special Operations Command, he fought to keep his humanity amid the killing fields of Iraq and Afghanistan. But war never leaves its participants unscathed. Through brutally honest storytelling, where cowards go to die reveals an unflinchingly honest port- portrait rather, of war that few dare to tell, vividly capturing the reality of the men and women who learn to fight without remorse, love each other without restraint, and suffer the high cost of returning to a country they no longer feel 
like home in. Benjamin Sledge is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, serving most of his time under special operations. He is the recipient of a Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals for his actions overseas. Upon returning home for more, he began work in mental health and addiction recovery. He has authored several articles, two books. He lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado with his wife and their two children, a daughter and a son. And we are just uh, delighted to have you with us. Thank you, Benjamin Sledge. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on the show. You know, my first uh, instinct is to say thank you for your service. But reading your book, I feel it's more appropriate to say thank you for your sacrifice because what you explain in your book really puts into perspective that it's not just a singular event that we're thanking you for. It's a service that really continues to uh, require a heavy cost to those who are engaged. So thank you for your sacrifice. Well, I very much appreciate your support. Well, let me ask you about the title of the book, Where Cowards Go to Die. It runs contrary to what most of us tend to just naturally think about those who choose to serve in our, our nation. What motivated you to, to come up with this title to describe not only your story, which is intensely personal, but a story that really reflects the experience of so many in our nation's armed forces? Right. Uh, you know, I, I started out with the end in mind before I even began writing the book. And really, it came down to my own struggles and the struggles of many veterans who fought in the, the longest running wars in the history of the United States. So less than one percent of the population served in Iraq and Afghanistan, which saw no end in sight for us. And um, what I discovered was, is as I was transitioning into the civilian world and, and trying to, to figure out who I was, what my identity was, what my purpose was, um, there was a lot of me that didn't want to confront the past pain, the trauma, the hardships, the, the, the grotesque and, and uh, destruction that I saw like on the battlefield. And it was easier to run. And so the thing that I discovered was in order to really face and grow as a human being, I had to aptly kill the coward in me that wanted to stay safe. And, and that's like the flip side, honestly, of the human condition most times. It's when we refuse to give our lives in something greater, when we uh, don't sacrifice for other people, when we don't. Um, operate in compassion and humility, but instead embrace vice, um, we, we effectively die as cowards because we're unwilling to um, bleed the areas of our life that are, are actually killing us. And the, the opposite side, the flip side of that coin is when I went to combat, I had to learn how to sacrifice for something greater than myself, for the guys around me. And then when I came home, I had to, uh, again, confront who I was, what I was capable of, and and kill the coward in me that wanted to stay safe. And so exploring that through the lens of Iraq and Afghanistan, and then especially homecoming, which is missed in so many books in the aftermath mm-hmm. of, of 10 years and dealing with this, um, that that's really where the title came from. Is that the fault of the military not preparing um, warriors who are, by virtue of their decision to serve, um, are, are brave? Is it the fault of the military for not preparing you for that transition, or is it just inherent to the nature of the kind of engagement that you're coming out of, that this is something you have to to do on your own? Um, It's a little, it's it's layered. It's a layered response. So so let me explain that. Mm -hmm. There's definitely fault that lies on behalf of the military. 
it's kind of like once you leave the military, they're like, all right, good luck. Uh, you know, go out and get them, Tiger. And, and it really doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And there's actually a 2012 study by Gibbons and colleagues where they looked at um, veterans and they discovered that veterans who don't find a new mission, a new purpose, a new unit, a new affiliation, whether that be religious faith or uh, just, you know, some place to connect with uh, intramural sports, they will struggle the rest of their lives. And the big reason behind that is, is in the military, you have a mission, a purpose, a direction, you're told what to do. Uh, and then on top of that, you have this camaraderie, this brotherhood, this sisterhood, where people have your back and you have theirs and would be gladly be willing to take a bullet for you. And then you enter kind of a, a different environment where those rules get thrown out the window. And as we've seen with the great resignation and everything that's going on in our nation, people got are tired of bosses trampling over them um, or trampling other employees, trampling over each other to get to the top. And so when you enter that workforce, it's, it's a culture shock. You're like, oh, my gosh, nobody has my back anymore. Um, and so some of that is society's fault. Some of that mm -hmm. is effectively the military's fault. So it's kind of a both-end answer. You write in your chapter, The Frayed Ends of Sanity, you take an 18-year-old kid and strip him of any identity he's ever had. You shave his head, take his clothes, and issue him fatigues so he looks like everyone else. You remind him that he's, and you're rather graphic, worthless, uh, yeah. Until he adapts to the harsh environment. Then you tell him his enemy is subhuman and longs to end his livelihood and freedom. You hand him a rifle and convince him death on the battlefield is glorious. When your friends die, you have um, uh, you harden further and swear vengeance. Soon nothing matters except the man next to you and your rifle. And again, that's a perspective that those of us who've never been in the military haven't really been able to fully appreciate. And then to transition from that experience back home has to be far more significant than most of us um, would have thought. Yeah, it's, it's an extremely jarring experience uh, because what they do is they break you down and mold you into the image that they want, that of a warrior. Um, and a new identity is formed. And, and you often realize that there's a lot that goes in there that isn't necessarily, you know, they're, they're, they're doing it to condition you. And you realize some of it's just garbage. But this, the thing is, is everybody looks like one another. Everybody's uh, focused towards the same mission, um, towards the same purpose. And uh, then you go overseas, right? And And you're in an environment where you're, effectively dealing with the gross underbelly of human nature, war and mm -hmm. combat. And the public is so far removed from that, that when you come home, um, you know, it, in the longest running wars, like I said, you have most of the populace was, was kind of checked out. War was just kind of this background noise, this, this low thrum um, until it, you know, made the news cycle. And one minute you're overseas and you're literally on a flight. You're, you're there in Iraq or Afghanistan. And then what the next you're home and you're there, you usually arrive during the holiday season or something's going on. And people are like, Oh, it's pumpkin spice latte season. And you just had people trying to kill you. And then everybody else comes back and is like telling you to celebrate. And it's, it's really kind of this culture shock and yeah. overload for you. And so out of that, um, you know, it, and it's funny you bring up that line. Uh, that has been the most highlighted line by uh, early beta readers and, and other veterans uh, who have felt uh, 
you know, connection with that piece. They go, man, this is really profound because that's the way that I felt. Yeah, that's, that's very descriptive. Now, tell us a little bit about your early days in the global war on terror. What changed between Afghanistan and Iraq? Uh, so, I, you know, a little bit of background. I joined in 1999 for the college money um, and because I had a very long history of uh, a family in the military, tracing back as far as a general under Napoleon. So it just kind of runs in the blood. And uh, and then September 11th happened. And so Afghanistan, to me, initially was like kind of this, uh, this is what I'm here for. This, you know, we, we saw an attack on our country. We responded and we effectively took care of that within the first six months, really, uh, very much in the same manner that we did in the first Gulf War. But then we kind of lost the ability to provide a clear objective and goal as far as what we're going to do. And our foreign policy just kind of became this massive debacle. And so we we began to just kind of slap uh, lipstick on the pig of war. And and when I was there, by the time I got there in 2003, it was starting to transition less of like, we're fighting Al Qaeda. They're kind of more over in Iraq right now. Even though they were everywhere, the Taliban and Al Qaeda were still there. Uh, it became more about okay, well, we have all these poppy fields and we have the Silk Road trade. We need to, and so the DEA was over there uh, dealing with like the drug trade, and then it transitioned to minerals and commodities. And Afghanistan is this mineral-rich lithium environment, and we just we kind of continued to change the narrative and what we were sold initially. Uh, just really kind of sharply declined. And and that became very difficult for a lot of us to stomach without, you know, being in the military, having a clear objective and purpose. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what are we doing? Are we fighting? Are we, are we stabilizing this country? Are we protecting the Afghan people? And we just we didn't really know, and it confused so many of us. And then Iraq kind of became the same way. And when we left, um, all the progress that we fought for, um, especially while I was in Ramadi, just went to nothing when ISIS uh, reclaimed the ground. And then, you know, you look at the debacle of the withdrawal from mm. Afghanistan in August 2021, and many of us were left wondering, OK, what did we do for the last 20 years here? And uh, it, it, it was it was difficult to process that. I tell you what, I need to take a break. Hold that thought. We'll continue in just a few moments. Once again, we're talking with Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of a book that I would encourage you to read, Where Cowards Go to Die, if you want to really understand the cost of war to the individuals who fight it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Benjamin Sledge. He is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He served most of his time under special operations. He's the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Most recently, he's the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. Now, just before the break, I was asking you to tell us about your early days in the global war on terror, and you were talking about the changes between Afghan uh, Afghanistan and Iraq from your vantage point there in in the, the the theater of war. Certainly, for those of us looking on or following on the news, uh, we experienced some frustration. But the level of frustration you must have had seeing things change and not having a clear objective, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish answering that question if you had wanted to add to it. 
Sure. Um, you know, it was interesting. I, obviously, we left behind many of the people that uh, supported us during yes. the Afghan war, um, our interpreters. And so I, I recently was working with an organization and um, working to get interpreters out of the country. And the, the special immigrant visa is just an absolute nightmare process for, for our interpreters to get stateside. And these are men and women who risk their neck in their life. But um, one of the things that, that was really profound is I asked one of the interpreters, I said, did what we do matter? You know, or did, did we help? And he, there's, there's always a silver lining to everything. And one of the things that I, I do want to clarify is he said, I, I lived under the Taliban as a kid. And he said it was awful. He said, you know, women couldn't have uh, an education. Uh, they were batting zero, zero, zero for zero for that. And then, you know, suddenly you have these these girls schools built. Um, Kabul uh, absolutely explodes um, as far as, you know, um, literary and people thinking and coffee shops, uh, road, electricity, technology, he says. Uh, he said, but here's the thing. Uh, he said, in America, you give your kids 18 years under the roof, right? And he said, you gave us an additional two years um, to, to kind of figure stuff out. And he said, and we didn't stand up our, on our own and fight. And I think that's that's kind mm-hmm. of the gut punch for like a lot of us is it was like, man, we, we really worked so that you guys would stand up and take agency over your country and create it into whatever you wanted it to be. We don't want it to be America 2.0. We just want it to be what you guys desire of it. And and they just didn't. And that was I think that was really devastating for a lot of us um, just watching that happen. Mm. Yeah, I, I appreciate hearing his perspective, uh, having been left behind there and having lived uh, under the, the Taliban rule as it exists today. Now, you touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but one of the points of your book is transitioning away from a war zone and the tremendous um, cost to uh, making it possible to succeed in war and then transitioning um, to reengage into society. Do you think civilians can help in part of that process to restore veterans? What do we need to know about that that might help us to be part of the solution rather than uh, either disconnected from the solution or part of the problem? Right. I, I actually train a lot of organizations on this that, that are um, civilian in nature but are looking to work with veterans. And one of the things that I, a story that I tell is when I got home from Iraq uh, in my late 20s, one of the things that helped, the very thing that helped me readjust was not other members of the military. It was two civilians. And people are shocked when they hear that. And one of the, the, the key components is, is this. When I, when I first returned home from Afghanistan, uh, I didn't want to become one of those vets that didn't talk about their experience. And so I started telling everything. The problem was, is I'm dealing with morally ambiguous situations. And like many first responders and doctors and uh, members of the military, we develop gallows humor uh, because mm-hmm. of the, the trauma and the hardship that we endure. And so immediately I began telling these stories and I'm like, and so this insurgent's head explodes. And I'm laughing about it, right? Because I don't, I don't know how to process that trauma. I don't know how to process what I've seen. And so it becomes this human defense mechanism uh, for, for many of us. 
And I can see the way that people become uncomfortable. It's not what they say, it's their body language. And it's, it's the fake smile or it's the shift in, in uncomfortable position. And it communicates to many veterans, you are a monster um, in our minds. It's, it's not intentional on their behalf. They don't know how to do that uh, or, ha- or how they should respond. But that shut me down. And so I just I never talked about war. And then I went to Iraq and, and I came home and I didn't talk about war for years and years and years and years. And really, it was these two civilians who begin to open up to me uh, and begin to share about things that they had gone through in their lives that were very difficult and very hard. One of one of my friends had gone through uh, and I just met him and he just began to open up because suffering is a universal language that we all speak. Our circumstances and situations may be different, but we all have something that we've been through that we can relate to. And so he he shared about how, um, you know, his parents had died in rapid succession within three months. His dad was an alcoholic and he kind of loved and hated him. And then on top of that, his parents were hoarders. So he was dealing with like a lot of shame. His marriage was in, in trouble. And so he was in counseling. And at the time I was like, oh, we don't do counseling. You know, we're strong military men. Um And he really just changed my perspective. And as he began to open up to me, I became more comfortable opening up to him. The problem is is that everybody thinks that they can fix veterans by diving into their trauma first. And and they meet him and they're like, okay, tell me about these worst experiences of your life or your your killing and maiming or whatever it is, these hardships. And that's totally inappropriate. And yet we think it's okay to do to our veterans who come home from war, um, asking them absurd questions like, how many people did you kill? And I realized that people have, are are curious by nature, but you're asking them about a a very traumatic incident. So the way that I I train um, civilians is that I go, you are often the best line of defense and resource that we have because we want to tell our stories. We want you guys to understand. And yet we we just feel alienated by like the body language or you expecting us to open up first when when really we want you guys to build a, a common bridge between us first so that we feel safe and seen and heard before we get into kind of those, those dark parts of our life. And the more that um, you do this, the more that we're, we're gladly and happily will tell some of the things that we've been through. And as we, we begin to see, see how you respond and trust you, the more we begin to open up and it bridges the civilian-soldier divide. Mm. So we sort of earn the right to bear some of the burden that you carry in the stories and experiences that you've had. Absolutely. There's a story in the book about um, you getting injected. And this is really goes to the fact that uh, the, <laughs> the culture doesn't really understand military service in the first place. But uh, you talk about being injected in the face with Novocaine and then having everyone punch you as hard as possible in the face. That's just one example of military <laughs> culture. <laughs> Can you help explain? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that was a, a night in Iraq. And that's the thing. People don't <laughs> military culture is totally absurd. It's like hyper violent at times and then also very compassionate and sensitive. You know, when your friends die, you're weeping and crying and holding and hugging one another. And, you know, the deepest um, secrets of their lives, you know, they're about their family life because you're, you're in this combat experience together and you're sharing everything, but you're also involved in like all these, you know, hijinks and shenanigans. And so, um, one of my, uh, my corporal at the time, he, he was starting to fray and, uh, I was like, man, we need to have a little bit of fun. And so we, go, we go to this dentist's office cause we had 
made friends with the de- the dentist on base. You're going to have fun. Go to the dentist's office. That's the first thing I think. <laughs> We're going to have fun. Go to the well, dentist's office. <laughs> they had they had brought in some bootleg wine, so we're all like drinking a little bit of wine, and then I'm I'm sitting there, and I you know I get these bad ideas, and uh, I'm like, hey, do you guys have laughing gas at first? And they're like, no, that's under lock and key. I was like, what about Novocaine? And they're like, yeah. And uh, so eventually we just start, like start injecting each other in the mouth and then we, it turns into like fight club. And I'm like, I want you to punch me in the face as hard as you can. And they're like, okay, that sounds incredible. <laughs> and then uh, by the end of the night, you know, we're all throwing darts at each other. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of that level of just insanity that, that you deal with when you're in those environments and you, you end up doing dumb stuff to blow off steam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to take a break here at the top of the hour, but we'll continue our conversation. I want to talk a little bit about your mental health and how you have moved forward and uh, your your faith journey as well. So we'll get into that when we return. Once again, we're talking. Let me make sure I put you on hold and don't hang up a second time. We're talking with Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. The book is published by Regnery. It'll be released on the 5th of July, and it's a helpful reminder and perhaps teacher to those of us who don't fully understand uh, what war is like for those who are actually in them and what it's like to try to transition back home to a place that may seem less familiar than it once did. We'll be back after news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to let you know that coming up in the second hour, well, which we're in, I'll have a conversation with Maureen Ferguson. She's a senior fellow at the Catholic Association. They filed an amicus brief in the Dodds case. We'll talk about what next. That's coming up later this hour. For now, I'm continuing my conversation with author Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. It vividly captures the reality of the men and women who learn to fight without remorse, love each other without restraint, and suffer the high cost of returning to a country that no longer feels quite like home. It's a book that will give you a clear understanding of what it's like to be in war and what it's like to try to transition back into civilian uh, civilian life. Well, let me ask you, um, you uh, paint a picture of war that's unlike other memoirs. You, you focus on mm-hmm. and reveal the darker side of combat and the brutal truth of how depraved men can act instead of solely a heroic and rated PG account. Why is it important for the civilians back home to better understand the nature of war as it actually exists, as opposed to the Hollywood version? Yeah, I, I mean, we get sold a romanticized version. Uh, pretty much of, everything. Uh, but <laughs> Yeah, and especially of combat. Like, it mm-hmm. is, I mean, people's guts out on the ground, heads exploding, stuff like that. Like, that, I mean, the difficult part is, is, some of the movies do encapsulate this, but some, realistically, a lot of the books that are coming out right now about Afghanistan and Iraq are, are kind of broken in that respect. It's it's about the heroics. And, uh, you know, the joke inside the book industry right now that we, we kind of tease about is if you're a Navy SEAL, you get a book deal, you know. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of what's what's come out. And a lot of us, uh, you know, we we were just. Your regular soldiers who had to deal with life or death calls, uh, morally ambiguous situations. Do I, you know, shoot this woman or child? Um, You you know, how do I uh, protect my family back home from the gross atrocities that I'm seeing? And and out of that, 
we we don't really talk about like what war costs in the long run of what's happened to our veterans. I mean, we have a astronomical um, suicide issue among our veterans. Uh, it was, you know, it was 22 a day at one point. Now it's 17.6. But even then, the, the VA didn't really start tracking it until the 2010s. So it, it could have been even higher. And one of the reasons why is we became institutionalized by um, these repeated back-to-back deployments with no uh, buy-in from the American populace, no draft. You had 0.86% serve uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years, uh, whereas in Vietnam, you had 7% of the population serve. And in World War II, you had 11% of the population. And, and like I told you earlier, war kind of became this background noise while everybody continued their lives. And we um, came home and really kind of struggled within that and I don't, I don't think you can paint a really cohesive picture of combat in the military without including the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I wanted to make it true to the, the, the language, the nature, the hijinks, like the, I explained with the <laughs> dentist, that, um, that really encapsulate the military so that those of us who felt alone um, by our experiences go, if you want to know more about me and I've never, you know, and I can't talk about it, then you need to read this book. And so my hope is, is that ultimately it paints that cohesive picture and really gives our average veteran a voice. Uh, You write about your own decades long search for faith and how you found it through uh, the most unlikely of circumstances and your, your search for mental, um, mental health groundedness, if, if you will. Can you talk a little bit right. about your journey? Yeah. Um, so when I, I grew up in uh, Oklahoma in like the buckle of the Bible belt and uh, grew up just kind of this environment where like everybody was Christians, what you did if you wanted to have like a good business. And much of my upbringing in the eighties was very, very similar to like footloose, you know, don't drink, don't dance uh, kind of, environment. So by like 17, I started getting exposed to like kind of these televangelist style preachers and was involved in like, um, you know, this like prosperity gospel where everyone's having mansions and stuff. And yet your average parishioner is really struggling to make ends meet. And I was just like, man, I think this is all a bunch of hogwash and poppycock. So I, I, quietly left the church. I just didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to have those conversations. And when I went to war, I really began to struggle with the human condition because what I saw, and we love to act act enlightened in our modern era where we're like, oh, we're so enlightened. We're not as barbaric. And I'm like, really? We, We can destroy the entire world now, whereas we couldn't. And we literally have no idea why we would do that. Plus, we have drone strikes where you can kill entire groups of, of people with the push of a button from a Connex box in Nevada. You, you're telling me we're, we may be more advanced. We've just also figured out how to kill each other better. And, uh, and that seeing you know, the destruction of war and collateral damage uh, of human beings that were innocent really messed with me. And so I began to search out, like, what is the purpose of, like, the human existence? Um, And not like, you know, what's my purpose, but what's our purpose as homo sapiens? Like, uh, are we supposed to build, cultivate, you know, the solar system or whatever? 
And so I searched, you know, throughout religious means and, um, you know, secular humanism. And finally, you know, when I got back from Iraq, I was just crumbling and falling apart because I I didn't know how to deal with what I was going through and what my purpose, direction or meaning was, which is what many veterans uh, struggle with because they had that in the military. And eventually my uh, atheist buddy takes me to church of all places. And uh, I, I still have no idea how that happens. But um, there, I just, I really begin to hear a message that I never heard growing up, and it, it transformed my life. And then I had people who were actually Christian, not just in word, but in action, and mm-hmm. it, that blew me away. It was like the first time I actually met real Christians, and I was like, man, these people really care about other people. They care about the marginalized, the oppressed, um, but I thought, you know, because of what I had been a part of, I deserved to burn. And the the messages really just begin to sink in. And so I began, you know, reading a lot. I read philosophers um, ranging from, uh, you know, the, the theologian, great theologian and fantasy novel uh, writer of our time, C.S. Lewis, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is killed by the Nazis, to guys like uh, Luke Ferry, and um, who, who's a French philosopher, um, to, you know, the Stoics, uh, Epictetus, and uh, Marcus Aurelius. And and really, as I begin to kind of compile that and, and deal with my past, I realized that I had to confront not just the moral and the physical and the emotional things that I went through overseas, but also the existential, why am I here? And then the spiritual aspect of war. And this is the part that many people miss. War is a very, very spiritual experience, and people miss that. And I, you know, the best way I explain it is, is Um, most of us believe inherently that we know what's going to happen after we die, uh, you know, based on our thought process. You know, for me, as a a Christian, it's like, okay, I go to heaven, spend eternity with Jesus kind of thing. Uh, For other people, it's nirvana and reincarnation. For other people, it's the great nothingness. But there is no formative consensus board as far as like what happens with you when you die. And none of us really know. Here's the thing. You point an M4 carbine rifle at a man and you pull the trigger, you send him to the great unknown. And that's like playing God on some level. You have the power to protect life and to take it away. And there's something just inherently deeply spiritual about that. And so I had to, to really wrestle with these with these emotions and and uh, the spiritual aspects, the existential, the moral, uh, the philosophical, and and when I was able to kind of land the plane, I found that uh, for me, I found Christianity, and and I realize it's not for everybody, but it was a it was a emotionally uh, satisfying and intellectually stimulating for me, and so uh, it really being involved in that community. Um, just really kind of helped to reshape me. And then I, you know, got into counseling. I got into mental health work because I wanted to impact other veterans and have them search for, and find their meaning too. And and not have an agenda as far as like, okay, you have to believe as I do, but um, how can I help you? Because my faith informs what I do. Yeah, yeah. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Benjamin Sledge. He's the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. We'll continue a final segment here in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, the book is published by Regnery. will be out and available for purchase on the 5th of July. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'll be back with my conversation with Benjamin Sledge, author of uh, the book you need to read, Where Cowards Go to Die. It's published by Regnery. But first, I need to take a moment to give away a pair of tickets for early admission to the Northwest's largest garage and vintage sale. That's coming up this Saturday. If you love a bargain, and I certainly do, you won't want to miss the Northwest's largest garage and vintage sale. It's happening this Saturday, July the 2nd, at the Clark County Fairgrounds. Rounds. Well, the sale runs from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. with early bird entry at 7 a.m. And we want to give you that access to win a pair of early admission uh, passes. All you need to do is give us a call at 1-800-845-2162. We'll give them to the third caller, 800-845-2162. Uh, you can also enter to win passes at kpdq.com. But once again, our phone number, 800-845-2162. Six, two. And now for an awkward transition back to my guest who's written the book Where Cowards Go to Die. Uh, my guest is uh, Benjamin Sledge. Now, this is such a fascinating account of life in the military, life after the military and assimilating back into civilian life. What do you hope your readers will take away from a read of this book that tells a very um, uh, uh, clear and graphic look at what uh, our military men and women actually go through in order to preserve our freedom uh, and to serve their country? Uh, you know, it's funny. I've, I've gotten that question, I think, more than anything from, you know, other veterans. They're like, you know, what's, what's the purpose of writing this book? And for me, it's, it's to give you the voice that you haven't had or the ability to explain things that you find difficult to talk about. And ultimately, for civilians to understand that, um, unfortunately, war is uh, an inevitable part of the human nature. It's It's been around for eons and thousands of years, and there's just something weird inside, you know, the human condition that, that pushes us um, this in this manner. And I want them to see the, the astronomical cost. Yes. Of what what really happened, and the the fact you know that growing up, I, I, I would always quote you know that oh freedom isn't free, and I believed in this like jingoistic nonsensical version of that. But as I come as I came to discover fighting overseas, I was like, man, it really isn't like for for everyone in America to stay at home to not have their sons and daughters drafted um, to continue to enjoy their Starbucks seasons and um, just go about their day-to-day lives without a care in the world as far as the the wars. And, and this is the thing that we forget. We live in a democracy, so therefore we vote to put people in positions of power who will either justly or unjustly um, send young men and women from their country to die on, on the battlefield. And out of that, there has to be some sort of collective responsibility. And because, you know, if you live in any country in the world, you have to submit to their governing rules and bodies uh, based on the country that you that you live in, whether that's uh, a dictatorship or a democracy. And so there is kind of this collective um, responsibility that we all have. And, and I want to bridge, as I said earlier, that civilian soldier divide so that People have a very clear and concise picture of what happened the last 20 years and what it cost our veterans who endured the brunt of it. Do you think your experience is dramatically different from the experience of 
soldiers in World War II, for example. You write about your relationship, I, I believe it's with your grandfather, uh, and the camaraderie mm-hmm. that the two of you feel. Is the experience that you had in the theater of war, of war uh, the longest-running war, has that made it dramatically different from what your grandfather, for example, and, and others in your family experienced? Or is it essentially the same experience with just some subtle differences in terms of where and what munitions and so on? Uh, I like to tell people all wars are the same and all wars are different. Um, war at its, its very basic level is, is you know, uh, men and women killing each other um, and fighting over, uh, you know, to gain ground. And so in some ways, our, our wars were very, very similar, uh, almost identical. It was, it was bizarre for me because my grandfather was, fought with the 82nd Airborne. And then that's who I was attached to when I first went into Afghanistan. He never talked about war. Um, the the one thing that he said when I got back home from Afghanistan before he died was he literally just looked at me and said, now you're a man and left it at that. And and I think really, honestly, what he was saying is like, now you know what it's like to sacrifice. And now you know what like the killing mm-hmm. fields are like, um, because most of everybody else doesn't. But at the same time, you know, my grandfather um, and even my wife's uh, grandfather, they, they endured four years of war, not 20. And they came home and they had to get back to their lives. And you had much of the population that was there supporting that war effort. It was constantly on the news. It was before you went and saw a movie, they did war updates. It was in everybody's mind. People were working in factories. They were buying war bonds. So it, it was this collective consciousness of, okay, we, we have got to win this thing. Whereas we went into Afghanistan and we we're like, we got to win this thing. And then Iraq kicked off and it just, it, it just went on forever. And then everybody just kind of forgot about it until, you know, the withdrawal of Kabul. And I, and I think the thing that somewhat enraged me the most was when we left, all of a sudden people suddenly cared about the 13 service members that were killed, but they didn't give, mm. two, they, they didn't care at all about my best friend who died. Um, they didn't care about the other guys I knew that died. There was there was nobody putting out you know beers for them at all the restaurants and you know saying oh these these brave souls and I'm like what about my friends that endured the past 15 years what, where were you for them and that was very difficult and very hard to navigate through and so it was it was different because of the fact that there was just kind of a, a different mindset. Now, granted, I'm not mad at the, the American populace at all, and I need to clarify that. I am so thankful for their support, and they have been unbelievably generous. But it's still, it's very difficult for a lot of us just because of the fact that we, we endured so much and was asked so much, and yet we still can't get accurate health care coverage by the Department of Veteran Affairs, it's it's a debacle. A lot of us are dying of cancers, um, even in my, inside my unit, um, because of the chemical exposures and the um, uh, burn pits that we endured overseas. That, that you know, we talk about taking care of our veterans, and yet we come home and we're kind of some of the most messed up people um, because of what we experienced. And yet when you had world war two kick off, they, they created like all these new programs. It's like get a VA loan for a, for a home, you know, veterans preferences and, and stuff. And it feels like that just, that, that wasn't the case. And in many ways, 
um, you know, employers to some degree shied away from yeah. reservists and National mm-hmm. Guardsmen um, as far as hiring them because they knew their number could get punched any day. So it war was the same. War was different. Yeah. Well, I tell you, we're just we're out of time, but I, I appreciate your willingness to put pen to paper and to to share your experience and to give us a better appreciation for and understanding of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the sacrifice that you and others have made. And I would encourage our listeners who want to have a better understanding to read Where Cowards Go to Die. It's published by Regnery and will be out and available on the 5th. Can they pre-order the book? Yes, you can pre-order on any major uh, outlet, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's, it's all out there, IndieBound. Um, but yes, it, it, it drops July 5th and, uh, you can even head to some local bookstores and pick it up. Great. Thank you so much. Again, Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. Up next, Maureen Ferguson, senior fellow at the Catholic Association on Roe. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I've admitted as a pro-life activist, I never thought in my lifetime I would see the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Well, that has now happened. We understand what that means. It doesn't mean that abortion is abolished in our country, certainly not here in the Pacific Northwest, but it does mean that we have opportunities as the American people to weigh in on this subject, as was the case before that infamous Supreme Court decision. Well, joining me to talk about that, the consequence of it and where we go from here, Maureen Ferguson is a senior fellow with the Catholic Association. Maureen, it's a pleasure to talk with you once again, and I've never been happier to speak with you than this time around. Well, it's certainly a joyful reason that you have me on the show, so I'm very glad to be joining you. How would you define the overturn of Roe versus Wade? Because, as I mentioned, it doesn't abolish abortion on demand, but it certainly does give the people an opportunity to weigh in. How would you describe the the consequence of this decision? Right. Well, on the one hand, it's an incredibly momentous decision that so many people across the nation have been working towards for nearly 50 years. And it's really earth shattering that it's actually happened. Uh, but on the other hand, it's really a very simple decision. Uh, The decision simply says that abortion is not in our Constitution, that our Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, and that it's not consistent with, you know, the history of our country. So all the decision does is it lets the people decide through their elected representatives. So in that sense, it's really a very simple decision. But what it means for those of us who really value the sanctity of human life, it really means the debate is beginning anew. Because now in every state legislature, there will be a debate about these things. And it's really incumbent upon us to know the truth about the human person, the beauty of nascent human life. Uh, It's really incumbent upon us to speak up for the voiceless and to support mothers in need. You point out in a a comment you made at the time of the decision um, that the debate begins anew between two competing visions of the value of human life and woman's flourishing. And really, that's a major part of the, the question that the culture raises is, is it required? Is abortion required in order for women to flourish? And the lie has been, yes, it's absolutely required that you pit the, you pit the interests of the would-be mother against the child in order for her to flourish. Your response to that? 
Well, it's right. I I believe there are two competing visions, and the pro-life vision is a very hopeful vision. It recognizes the biological fact that at the moment of sperm-egg fusion, we have a genetically distinct, new, unique, unrepeatable human being that is created. Um, And with regard to women's flourishing, pro-life people see uh, the resiliency in women and work with women in need every day and see countless story after story of women who really do rise to the occasion and are able to finish their education despite a surprise pregnancy in college or uh, or overcome economic circumstances or are able to get off drugs uh, for the sake of their unborn child. And, and the competing vision is that of the abortion lobby, which is really one of despair. It argues that women need abortion, that women have to sort of make their bodies more like men's in order to be fully equal and to participate fully in the economic and social life of our nation. And it, it's really a very, well, as I said, despairing view. And it, um, it, it it really degrades women to say that women cannot be equal in our society unless we have access to abortion, essentially, as a method of birth control. Mm. What does this decision demand of the pro-life movement moving forward? We've worked for this day. We've prayed for this day. It has now come. Roe versus Wade is overturned. In places like Oregon, Washington, and California, not much is going to change, and leadership has hardened. We will make this a place where people come for abortions. But for much of the country, there will be an earnest debate about the future of this practice. What does this call forth from the pro-life movement moving forward to address this moment? Well, as you describe, about half of the states, particularly states um, in the you know in the region where you are, um, about half of the states will continue to allow abortion on demand for any reason through nine months of pregnancy. And in those states, it's really incumbent upon pro-lifers to um, appeal to and help pregnant women in need because so often women, you know, sitting in the parking lot of an abortion clinic really don't want to go in. They're, they're pressured or they feel abandoned or they feel they have no other choice. So it's up to pro-lifers to offer another authentic choice, either through helping the mother to parent or through helping the mother to make an adoption plan for the child if, if they so choose. So, um, and then in the other half of the states, some states, some of the uh, other 50 percent immediately had these trigger laws which uh, protect unborn children and others slowly over the next months and years will likely move to protect unborn children in the womb. So in those states, there's going to be a real debate and we'll see democracy in action and we'll see who can make the best arguments, who can appeal to um, the better angels of our nature. And, and please, God, in the other half of states, there will be laws that protect unborn children. But of course, in those states, 
pro-lifers must redouble efforts mm-hmm. to help pregnant women in need, to support pregnancy centers. I mean, the one thing we should all do uh, in the light of overturning of Roe in this Dobbs decision, we should all either be volunteering with our, our time or at the very least donating uh, resources to help support these pregnancy care centers and maternity homes, which so beautifully every day are walking with women in need. One of the things that we're witnessing is the violent rejection of the Supreme Court decision. I won't go into all of it, but we've had several pregnancy resource centers uh, destroyed or uh, damaged here in uh, the Pacific Northwest. We've seen that across the country. We've seen churches disrupted as a means of expressing outrage of the decision at the decision made by the Supreme Court. Your response to that violent um, response to the overthrow of Roe versus Wade, which is what the American people wanted and what the Constitution demanded? Well, there was an article written recently about this topic in particular, and it made the point that violence begets violence. And on the one hand, we shouldn't be too surprised Mm -hmm. that a movement that is based on violence against innocent unborn children would resort to violence in pursuit of that cause. So it's a very sad reality Uh, I think we should all be on our knees praying a lot about that, praying for the protection of these pregnancy care centers. Um, But it's really outrageous that in in the name of, you know, being pro-choice, these are these are centers which are offering women a real choice choice to to parent or place the child for adoption. They're offering women a real choice. But yet the, the abortion lobby is going after after these centers with, with a vengeance, with violence, with threats. And um, it's, uh, I mean, other than prayer and appealing to our public officials to enforce the laws against these things, um, but I think that prayer is probably our most powerful weapon when it comes to the the violence that we've seen unleashed against pregnancy care centers. Yeah, absolutely. And I would think at minimum, which I don't want to minimize the the significance of having access to the throne of grace, at minimum, we should be praying uh, regularly uh, for the protection of these centers, but also for those who are insisting on the violent overthrow of the work that they're doing, that they too would come to see the light and the error of their ways and and thinking. Uh, What a tremendous opportunity we see for things to dramatically change and for the people to have an opportunity to speak in a way that could have real consequence moving forward, as opposed to speaking to the issue uh, that is immovable because of a Supreme Court decision. Well, Maureen Ferguson, I thank you so much for your consistent work, uh, pro-life work. I thank you for taking time to talk with us here today. And uh, I'm just delighted to be able to rejoice uh, with you at this new phase in the the battle for a pro-life culture. Well, thanks so much for having me on and um, God bless. You too. Again, Maureen Ferguson is a senior fellow at the Catholic Association. Uh, The uh, Catholic Association, by the way, uh, filed an amicus brief in the Dobbs case, so they uh, weighed in on that as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to take a look at some of the fallout from that decision and one Supreme Court decision that hasn't yet been made but could have significant consequence as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Just want to let you know, tomorrow on the program, we'll be talking with Dr. Greg Jans. He's the author of Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age. We'll also uh, talk on Thursday with Mark Paoletta, co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. It's a very timely interview given the attention that Justice Thomas has received in recent days. That's coming up on Thursday's program. Well, black-clad protesters on Saturday night smashed windows. They sprayed graffiti on businesses here in downtown Portland. Protesters targeted banks, a coffee shop, and a nonprofit mother and child education center where they smashed a window, damaged a metal grate, and graffitied a sign with obscenities. Protesters ignored the president's pleas for peaceful, peaceful, peaceful protests. Instead, acting on the rhetoric of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who said Democrats will fight ferociously for abortion rights, and Representative Maxine Waters, who said, well, the expletive with the Supreme Court, we will defy them. Pro-abortion activists targeted pro-life offices and churches even before the court's ruling. Demonstrators last month firebombed a pro-life office in Wisconsin. They vandalized four pro-life churches in Washington state. Early this month, they also firebombed a pregnancy center in New York. The attack appeared to have worsened since the Friday ruling, however. Well, thousands in San Francisco, for example, abortion advocates on Friday, they shut down an intersection For 49 minutes, protesters in Los Angeles the same day also blocked an intersection before assaulting police with projectiles, fireworks and a makeshift blowtorch. L.A. police arrested two protesters for resisting an executive officer and uh, attempting to murder another officer. In total, rioters with the intention of creating chaos and destruction injured four officers in L.A., the police department news release said. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot appeared in front of a crowd and as they um, screamed expletives and threatened the life of Justice Clarence Thomas, referring to the uh, uh, forceful concurrence he offered on Friday's case. Police in Phoenix on Friday, uh, Friday night, they deployed tear gas as protesters uh, hit windows. They uh, kicked open glass doors in the state Capitol building while the state Senate was in session. Officers on Saturday arrested four people who pulled down a temporary fence around Another area around the Capitol, according to the Arizona Department of Public Safety, uh, rioters in Washington, D.C., they burned an American flag. They chanted slogans such as, if we don't get it, burn it down. Uh, lawmakers and law enforcement should take threats seriously here at home. Immediately following the 1,000-person protest rally here in Portland, several death threats to kill lawmakers were scrawled. One was left on the building and another uh, scrawled on a public park building. Again, lawmakers and law enforcement should take these threats very seriously. There were also messages to kill the Supreme Court and to kill former President Trump. On a Portland city government building, another threat to politicians was left. This Portland threat outside the Hatfield Federal Courthouse to pro-life people is the same used across the country in various arson and vandalism attacks on pregnancy centers and pro-life offices. Over 22 such attacks occurred in the the, uh, past 40 days Uh, The total doesn't include those that took place this weekend. There were also murder messages left everywhere. There were kill all cops. There were kill SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, just days after a man tried to assassinate Justice Brett Kavanaugh outside his home. And their addresses have been uh, published uh, on social media all across various platforms. There were threats to journalist uh, Andy No. Uh, who was forced to leave the, the country years ago due to dozens of death threats to him and his family. There were threats to kill Kyle Rittenhouse, 
who also has to have security due to death threats against him. Now, what the two of them have to do with this particular issue, uh, we know that Jane's Fury or whatever the, the organization's name is, is connected to Antifa. So that might be the connection. Oregon must, all of that said, take these threats seriously. Look what's uh, happened over the last 30 days alone in Oregon. The fact that this weekend, 75 people in Eugene showed up to riot and attack a medical facility is disturbing. So hostile the crowd was that Eugene had to call for backup from neighboring city of Springfield. Several police officers uh, there were injured that night. If rioters were willing to injure police officers in public, how much more of danger uh, they might have for elected officials and judges. So kill, riot, these are words that are being Used And as my guest in the previous segment suggested, we need to be praying for the safety and security of those who hold a pro-life perspective. Meanwhile, the headline of Governor Inslee's e-message on Friday read West Coast states launch new multi-state commitment to reproductive freedom, standing united on protecting abortion access in the face of U.S. Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. End quote. California, Oregon and Washington, he notes, will continue to be a safe haven for all people unless you are in utero. I've added that part, seeking abortions and other reproductive health care services in these states. The governors of California, Oregon and Washington today issued, he says, a multi-state commitment to defend access to reproductive health care. That's what they call it now, reproductive health care, including abortion and contraceptives and committed to protecting patients and doctors against efforts by other states to export their abortion bans to our states. Well, biblical pro-life citizens are rejoicing, and rightly so. God has answered the prayers of many that have stretched over nearly 50 years in efforts of tens of thousands who have stood and marched for life peacefully. However, in one sense, the battle has just begun, and that is the challenge moving forward. Well, the Supreme Court's abortion ruling rocked the nation last week, but West Virginia versus East EPA could also be huge. Well, believe it or not, overturning Roe versus Wade may not be the Supreme Court's most dramatic decision this year. Instead, its ruling on West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency could prove more consequential, if you can imagine that. It could literally upend how our government works for the better. Well, West Virginia versus the EPA asks whether important policies that impact the lives of all Americans should be made by unelected D.C. bureaucrats or by Congress elected officials. Well, this SCOTUS could well decide that ruling by executive agency fiat is no longer acceptable. The case involves the Clean Power Plan, which was adopted under President Obama to fight climate change. The program was estimated to cost as much as $33 billion per year and would have completely reordered our nation's power grid. The state of West Virginia, joined by two coal companies and and others sued the EPA, arguing the plan was an abuse of power. Well, by deciding in favor of West Virginia, the court could begin to rein in the vast powers of the alphabet agencies in Washington, D.C. that run our lives and return it to the lawmakers whom we elect to create legislation. Well, just as the Supreme Court ruled in Roe versus Wade that abortion laws are more appropriately left up to the people, elected representatives, it may decide in West Virginia versus the EPA that Congress and not the federal government, not the federal agencies, I should say, should write our laws. Well, a decision that puts Congress in charge would stall environmental rules intended to replace fossil fuels with the renewable energy. Lawmakers back in the driver's seat, well, they'd have to debate and go to public uh, 
uh, go public with the consequences and the costs of regulations that are now adopted with little buy-in from the public. So this decision is expected perhaps as early as uh, Friday of this week, but this week uh, that decision is expected. Again, West Virginia versus EPA. We'll certainly follow what the court is saying and what they're doing and uh, let you know about that. Uh, just a couple of things. Tomorrow we'll talk with Dr. Greg Jans, social media and depression, how to be healthy and happy in the digital age. And we'll be giving away our final pair of uh, uh, early admission tickets to the Northwest's largest garage and vintage sale coming up this Saturday. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.